0: It's our custom to prepare ourselves for the study of God's Word by having a few moments of silent prayer, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we don't have to be this discouraged or disgruntled or upset about the things that are happening all over the world, the tumult. Because we have peace, security, and confidence inside our soul because of who and what you are and because you have revealed to us the things that we need in order to be overcomers even in the devil's world. We pray that you will help us to focus our full attention upon your mighty word this morning. Or we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and open to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. Chapter 3 starts the crossing of the river event. We saw that this is the first time that Joshua was going to take control of the people. There were approximately two million people. And the Lord had given him the general instructions to cross the river. He didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. But he did move the people right next to the river. That much he knew he had to do. And last week we looked at some comparisons of how that equates to us in our lives that God has given us generalities in the Bible for us to go to that direction, essentially to obey it, but he doesn't give us the specifics as to how to obey it. And I gave you a few illustrations. One was we know that God has given husbands instructions that they are the head of the house, that they are responsible for the well being of their household. But it, the Bible doesn't give specific instructions as to how to go about that. And so, just like Joshua doing everything that he knew to do, in order to fulfill the general command to cross the river. Remember, he sent spies into the land. He wanted to make sure that the armies weren't massing troops on the other side, what was their morale, what was their fortifications like, and so forth. So he did that. He came back, got a really good report, and then he started taking other specific steps in order to get the people ready to cross the river. The only thing, it was impossible for him to do anything that would allow them to cross the Jordan River for it was in the flood stage. It might have been as wide as a mile and it was had treacherous currents and you try to take a million or two million people and cross something like that, it just would have been a disaster. So the husbands are to take the steps that they are required by God to do. Remember the steps that I gave you last time? If You don't know exactly what they, they are. The first thing you do always, no matter what it is, is what? Pray. You, you go to the Lord. You talk to the Lord about it. You search the Scriptures. You find out what the Scriptures have to say about it. Then you analyze your situation. Just what is the situation? Is your house in order? Is it kind of there? Or is it a total disaster? You analyze what's going on there, and then it'd be a good idea to talk to people who have a household that seems to be running smoothly. How, how do they do it? How do they keep their kids from tearing down the curtains and burning the house down? I mean how how do you <coughs> excuse me <coughs> how do you manage these affairs? And so you've done all of that, and then the last step I said is to pull the trigger. that is you start implementing the changes that need to take place. Another example I gave you was uh, if a person (coughs) is going to uh, use corporal punishment on their children. We know that the Bible gives us the instructions as to use the rod from time to time. It doesn't tell us exactly how to use the rod. we, uh, We can get some hints though There's scripture in Proverbs that says you will beat him with a rod and he will not die. Well, why does it say that? Because when you spank a child, you would think that they're going to die if you're doing it right. But there's so many many things that you don't know exactly how to perform. For instance, with children, they're all different. Some of them take a very strong hand. And others, you can just look at them sternly and they fall to pieces. They just melt They're humble right then. Others, you have to really get down on them. And then when you do spank a child, how do you go about it? I mean, if you've never done it before, you have to, am I going to use a a wooden spoon, a belt, a switch? And how am I going to go about implementing this? See, this helps when you talk to other people. Remember that, that stage of it? Well, how do you do it? And then when do you do it? There are times that you should use corporal punishment, but most of the time you don't. It should be very rare when you use that, if you, corporal punishment that is, if you're doing it right. And it shouldn't be for just miscellaneous things. I, I remember I, I've seen parents spank their children for spilling their milk. And I thought, that's a horrible thing. Y'all can't help it. He, he's clumsy. He spills their milk. And the parent gets mad and spanks them. That's a disaster. Even when children are are doing things they ought not do, maybe it's not malicious. I mean, children have energy. Don't you wish you had the oh, six-year-old's energy? And they, they just, they're just bouncing off the wall sometimes. So you have to have some latitude, but there has to be boundaries, and they have to know what they are, you, know, you see what I'm talking about. God doesn't tell us, do this, 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 these twelve things and do it today and do it in this manner. So He expects us to accomplish these things on our own. For teenagers, they might be in a, well, it's not teenagers, but mostly it applies to them. They may be in a group that is in the wrong crowd. And they, they notice that and they don't know really, how do I extract myself from this situation? I don't want to come across as better than thou. I don't want to come across as uh, that like I'm uh, superior to them in any way. But I can't continue hanging out with this crowd because it isn't pleasing to God. It's the wrong thing to do. So how, how do I go about that? And those same steps that I gave you applies to them also. So here we have Joshua who gives the first command, move up to the river and we're going to get ready to cross and he doesn't even know exactly how it's going to go down yet. Can you imagine the pressure that he must have felt? I mean, if he knew exactly how it was going to go about, it would be no problem. What did he have to do in order to be a good leader? He had to know what God wanted him to do and he had to what? Trust the Lord. Move out on trust. You know, a lot of things that we do is in, I call it, we're in uncharted waters. For a husband that has, has neglected his responsibility and the household has, is in, in disarray in a way that he doesn't get the respect that he should and he, he finds out, maybe from a person, maybe reading the Bible, that he has to uh, get, it, get, get it under control and he's never done it before. It's kind of a scary thing. The same thing patting a child. It's not something pleasant. But, and it can be a scary thing. But you have to trust the Lord and do what you can do. And then we're going to see when you get to a point to where you hit a brick wall or a raging river a mile wide, that's as far as you can go. And then what do you have to do? Trust the Lord. In, in His timing, He's going to provide. So that kind of brings us up to speed to where we are with... We're going to start today in uh, verse 3 through... I don't know how far we'll get. We're just going to start in verse 3. Let's read it. Joshua chapter 3. Well, we only got two verses before then. Let's go ahead and read uh, starting with verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning... And he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan. And they lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp. And they commanded the people saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the Lord your God, with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. And do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So this 2,000 cubits is about 3,000 feet, which I think is somewhere around a half a mile. But we'll get to that. First of all, You notice the the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I'm not sure if you even know what the Ark of the Covenant is, but it was something that was very important in the Old Testament, and we can learn a lot from it even in the New Testament. And so they were to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and it was to go before the people. What is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is a... I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just show you a picture of it. This isn't really a picture of it. It's a representation of what it looks like. You see, the Bible gives specific instructions as to how big it was to be, the dimensions, and the way it was to be made, what it was going to be made out of, and... All the specifics. There it is. Okay. The Ark of the Covenant, get this first of all, represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can tell by what it was made of as well as of what was in it and its use. First of all, the bottom portion was, this portion here, was made out of acacia wood and it was covered with pure gold. Now that represents what we call the hypostatic union. The wood represented Christ's humanity and the gold that overlaid it was representing His deity. Inside of this box... Um, i don 't know the exact dimensions I could look them up for you. It was about two feet by four feet, something like that. two feet high, four feet uh, two feet wide, four feet wide, something like that, a couple feet high. Just general. Now inside the box were three items. In fact, you can turn to Hebrews chapter nine verse five let 's go there and we 'll see what was in it. Actually, it's uh, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. Now, here we are way in the middle. Not in the middle, but we're in the New Testament. And it's giving us information about the ark. So, the ark was not just something for the Old Testament for them to use. And they used it because they used the physical representations. And they have that type of uh, aspect. But even in the New Testament. We'll start with uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3. And behind the second veil was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. Now this was, they had the holy place when you went into the temple. And there that had the table of showbread, and the altar of incense, and the candelabra, the light, and that's, Christ is the bread of of, uh, life. He's the light of the world and the incense represented the prayers going up. All this was uh, very significant. Then there, there was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant sat. That's what this is talking about. So, and behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered with all sides with gold in which was a golden which was a golden jar, you could say it was maybe a bowl of some kind, holding the manna, and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. So these three things the the table of the covenants are what Moses carried down, remember from Mount Sinai? had. This is the law. These All these three items represent sin. First of all, this speaks of the jar of manna. You all know what manna is. Do you know what manna means in the Hebrew? It's translated from, it means, what is it? That's what manna meant. Because when they went outside, when the Israelites were out wandering in the desert and they saw the the manna on the ground, they went down and they said, Manna! <laughs> what is it? <laughs> and that's what it is. It's, it's manna. It's the food. Now, how is that associated with sin? Well, God provided this wonderful food for them faithfully. It no doubt was the best food nutritiously that you could eat. It probably tasted wonderful. But after a time, what did they do? They started murmuring and griping because they had the same menu every day. Well, wow, what's on the menu today? Uh, yeah, manna. Manna, manna, manna. And so anyway, after a time, they started grumbling. And they said, we want meat to eat. We're tired of this uh, veggies. Well, it wasn't vegetables. I don't know what it was. Some kind of meal or that they made into bread, whatever. But they were tired of it. And so they said they wanted meat. And God said, okay. You want meat? I'll give you meat. And he gave them quail. And the number of quail is astounding. It, billions of quail. And so they ate the quail. And they ate so much quail that it came out their nose. I know, y'all. I had, a, I had a disagreement with someone one time. They said, quail came out their nose. I said, that's what it says. Have you ever been so full and kind of <coughs> like this and <coughs> something came out your nose? I'm sorry it's not pretty sight, but I'm just telling you, that's what happened. Now, what was it? They were sinning, and God gave them something that they wanted. Only, And you know, quail is rich. It's a dark meat. It's very rich. And so what does this represent? It represents the sin of their murmuring. They weren't satisfied with what God had provided. The second item here is Aaron's rod, rod that budded. You know who Aaron was? He was Moses' brother. And he was the high priest. And so, what happened? There were those who said, "Well, you know, all this leadership is in in Moses' family. Here you have Aaron; he's he's the one that's uh, the high priest, and Moses, who set him up, anyway. Well, I believe God did, but anyway, they were challenging his leadership. And so, the Lord told. Moses, okay, go get the rods of all these leaders and these, all these different tribes and all and go put them in the temple. So they did that. And the next day they went and got the rods out and only one of them budded. It was sprouting almonds. And this was God's way of showing this is the one, this is my choice. It was, it was, uh, Aaron's, it was Aaron's rod, see. So what does that represent? It represents the rebellion of the people again, the sin, not accepting the leadership that God had given them. Then, of course, the, the third thing in the ark was the tablets of stone. This is the Ten Commandments, and it's easy to realize what that is. That's giving you the commandments of God, which demonstrated that there's no one that can actually keep them. No one except the Lord Jesus Christ has ever... T- uh, kept the law, not <coughs> excuse me, not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire <coughs> excuse me the entire Mosaic law. Okay, so you're getting the picture. inside this ark were all these things that represented sin. Now can you connect the dots here what this was representing? When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he took all of our sins upon himself. And that's what this is representing. The, the box here, the art being of wood and gold, represents the unique person of the Lord Jesus Christ who took on Himself the sins of the world. And the way that they represented that was to have these articles that represented sin inside of the box. Now on top of the box, this portion right here, was called the mercy seat and it was made out of pure gold. And on top of the mercy seat, you have these two angels. They're cherubim. And they it, it tells in the, in the Scriptures in the Old Testament exactly how they were to be made. They were to have their wings overspread. And they were looking. You can see in this representation, they're looking down at the mercy seat. So what is this representing? Well, you understand it when you see If you realize what happens on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, one day a year the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies. He was the only one that was allowed to do that, to go into it. And he would take the blood of an innocent animal, a sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on this mercy seat here. And when... It was, these two angels represent the justice and righteousness of God. And when they saw that blood, then those sins of the Israelites would be covered for another year. See, this would happen one time a year. And this was for essentially the unknown sins that they had committed. They would, they would, if they committed a sin, they were to acknowledge it to God. And then they would, they would uh, sacrifice an animal to be ceremonially clean. It was that blood that had to uh, be spilt in order for them to be clean. And one time a year that would go in here. So you can see how this represents the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a perfect illustration of not only who and what Jesus Christ is, but also what His work accomplished. This was done every year. Once the true... Lamb of God, the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ came and made the atonement. This was never done again. This is just holding God's wrath on sin in check until the true Lamb of God would come who took the sins upon Himself and God judged Him for those sins. And that's why we have such, so great a salvation. The, there were loops here in the, made into this ark. And you see the pole going through here. No one was to touch the ark. There's a, a place, I think it's in uh, 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, I'm not sure, where they were. Uh, the Philistines had captured the ark. And they had big time trouble as long as they had it. Uh, and they said, we don't want it anymore. Ever since we've got it, we've had nothing but misery. So they were going to take it back. And... <coughs> So they, they took it back and they were they put it on a cart. Now the proper way for this to be carried were the Levitical priests were the only ones that were to do it and they were to put poles through it and they would carry it up on their shoulders and this was the proper way to do it. There was a poor guy named Uzzah that was carrying it. it the, the ark was being carried one time and it looked like it was going to uh, be destabilized. He reached up there and touched it and he killed him instantly. God's serious about these things, And so everything had to be done in the proper way. And you'll see why this is important as we go through this, this river crossing. One other thing that I might point out, and that is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself was manifested in this, not only in the physical representation that we were looking at here, but also by the Shekinah glory. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. I'll spell it for you. It's S-H-E-K-I-N-A-H, the Shekinah glory. If you haven't heard what the Shekinah glory is, it actually was representing the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ at the temple. I'll give you a few notes on this and some scripture to show you what I'm talking about. It is related to theophanies. Do you all know what theophanies are? A theophany was Jesus Christ pre-incarnate before He became a human, a man, in the Old Testament. And it is inanimate things that appear and and God is the one that shows Himself or the Lord Jesus Christ in this sense. There was a cloud over the tabernacle and sometimes in the tabernacle. And this cloud was a manifestation of the Shekinah glory. Now, you get the term Shekinah glory from rabbinical writings. You're not going to find it in the Bible, so don't try to look it up. It's just a description of the manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ prior to His uh, (coughs) incarnation, and especially with regards to the temple. The Shekinah glory appeared as a bright light between the cherubs and the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. you remember where that was? So, here's the interesting thing. The Holy of Holies was completely dark because there was a veil, and the veil was, some say, as, as much as two feet wide in the temple. And, of course, it had walls over, uh, completely around it and a top on it. So, when you, when you have something completely separate from any light, how dark is it? Just go into a closet at night and shut the door. That's what it would be like in there. Now that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so when the high priest went in to sprinkle the blood on the Ark, how did he know where it was? I mean, you'd have to feel around and, okay, here's it. No, that's not what he did. He saw perfectly what was going on because the Shekinah glory, this light, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ was there and he could see what was going on. And he had to do it exactly right. There's uh, Jewish tradition says that when he went in there, they would take a rope and they would tie it around his ankle when he went in there. Because if he, like Uzzah, did something wrong, he's dead. And nobody's going to go in there. Only the high priest was the only one allowed in there. And then once a year. And so if he died in there, who's going to get him? Nobody. So... <laughs> Tradition says that they would tie a rope on him so if he doesn't come out, they can drag him out and he wouldn't stink up the plate. Well, no extra charge for that tradition there, but it makes sense to me. Um, so this all is representing the Lord Jesus Christ between the cherubs and the mercy seat. Now, here's some scriptures for you. This is the Shekinah glory, S-H-E-K-I-N-A-H. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35 says, "And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. A cl- this is the kind of glory in the, in, in the, it was viewed as a as a cloud, a dark cloud. I mean, you you couldn't see where you were going. Who's going to even if the, if this place, it would be the same as if uh, you." place was on fire and you see the smoke billowing out. who's going to go in there? And this is some, something similar. Uh, it wasn't smoke but it was a cloud. He, he wouldn't go in there. Exodus chapter 16 verse 10. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud number 16:42. And behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Hebrews nine five we just went over we read nine five didn't we did we get we didn't do five let's do five we just see uh, saw what the things were in the ark of the covenant and verse five says and above it this is above the the mercy seat were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. By the way, the Greek word for mercy seat is hilisterion, H-I-L-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. And it's the same word for propitiation. That means God is satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus Christ is even called our mercy seat. Isaiah 37:16, O Lord of the armies, O God of Israel, who sits between... The cherubs, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. And what does it say? The Lord of the armies who sits between the cherubs. The cherubim. That'd be the ark. Psalm 99 1. The Lord rules. He sits between the cherubs. Romans 9 4. Who are the Israelites to whom is the adoption? And the glory that would be the Shekinah glory and the covenants. Now here's something for you. I think this is really neat. The Shekinah glory would come down into the tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle was a portable temple. This is, they, they would use it, pack it up and haul it all over the, the Sinai Peninsula and all, in the wilderness. Uh, they would do that. And it would appear in the tabernacle and also in the temple. Once there was a, a solid a temple like uh, that Solomon built, where's the Shekinah glory today? There's no temple. Right. In First Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16, it says, "Do you not know that you are the temple of God? We are the temple. There's not going to be any temple, during the church age, during our time, because we are the temple, and so the Shekinah glory doesn't rest in any physical temple. the Shekinah glory rests in this temple. Turn to second Corinthians chapter six <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So, the Shekinah glory now dwells in this temple, not in A physical temple. All this is important because what we're going to see when they cross the river, I want to give you all this information on the Ark of the Covenant so that you'll realize it's importance because it is going to go first. This always is the case. Who is out on point? Who is out always in front of us clearing the way? The Lord Jesus Christ, represented by the Ark. Okay, let's get back to our Scripture here. So we know that the Ark of the Covenant represented the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have the next verse. The Levitical priests were to carry it. It says, you shall set out from your place and go after it. Always the Lord is leading the way. Now verse 4. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits, about a half a mile by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. First of all, it says that you're going to keep a distance, a, a, a big distance from this. And there's a lot of speculation. You can read a lot of commentaries and they say, well, it's, it's so holy and all this. But really, it's really a... a the reason there had to be a distance of that length is a very simple reason. is because God was about to do a great miracle and He wanted everyone to see it. Now, if everybody was crowded around the ark and people couldn't see what was going on, you, you just think, well, even, let's just say it was a million people. You get a million people and what do they tend to do? Especially if this was the focal point and it was supposed to go out ahead, they would just completely engulf it. And if the people didn't see what was going on, they could allege, "Well, you know, I didn't get it. I couldn't really see what was going on. It could have been somebody down there that really is the cause of this miracle. Maybe you remember when Moses uh, touched the the um, the Red Sea and it parted? Maybe somebody had a rod. Maybe somebody did something down there." But if they were this distance and it would take that distance with that great number of people, they're going to see for certain that man didn't have anything to do with it. And it actually helped them to keep the orderly fashion when you're getting that many people uh, going across. So now, but we have in this verse, there's still something strange here. Well, before I get to that, I want to make a couple of other observations. Uh, first of all, the ark is mentioned ten times in seventeen verses. That's how important the ark is with their crossing. The focus is clearly on the ark which what represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you get that many people you would have to have that distance for everyone to do what? Keep their eyes on the ark. There's not going to be any people getting in the way of the view. They're going to have a clear shot as they as they're going to cross. They can look up ahead and then even in the middle of the river, they can, they can look across and see the ark because there's a half a mile distance. Nobody's going to be uh, cluttering the way. And that's what was so important that the people, listen to this, needed to keep their eyes on the ark and not the water. Why? Well, because uh, there, there's a good, uh, here's the first observation the crossing illustrates our, our salvation. And the water represents judgment, just like it did in the flood, Noah's flood. The water represented judgment, and the ark represents Jesus Christ. And so, the water problem was resolved when the ark reached the river. So, our sins were taken care of. The problem at the, at the river, of course, was the water problem with us is our sins. Now, when the priest reached the edge of the water, what happened? The solution, the, 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 the water, the judgment was held off. And it's the same thing. When Jesus Christ reached the cross, our sin, which is the problem there, no longer a problem. Jesus Christ can, comes between the wrath of God on sin and our sin because He took it on Himself. And that's a representation that's taking place at the, re- at the crossing, at the river. It was the Ark of the Covenant representing Jesus Christ that became, came between the water, which was the ju- represented judgment, and the people. And now with regards to our salvation, it is Jesus Christ who keeps the wrath of God, which would be analogous to the water, from touching us, the people, because Jesus Christ becomes, comes between us. Jesus Christ came between the water and the people. Jesus Christ comes between us and the wrath of God. you understand that? That's the first observation with this, with this crossing. The second one is that it was a grace provision. The people didn't have anything to do with this. And it, re- but it did require something else then. You know what it required? Belief. Even just think about it. We're going to see when the when the priests were carrying the ark, and it is so detailed. It says when the sole of their feet touches the water, wham! It's going to happen. Something stupendous is going to happen. The waters are going to recede, and they're going to go across on dry. Ground. What was required of them? Even if you saw people going before you, the ark was out there, and the rivers were withheld, what is required of you? To get to the other side, to get. Takes belief, doesn't it? The people had to believe that the water was going to stay receded until they got across. So what did they have to do? They had to start walking. That's all they had to do. God provided everything, but they had to believe and trust that this was true salvation and start walking. Here's another perspective on this also. Who was qualified to, to cross the river? Wasn't it anyone? What if you were tall? What if you were short? What if you were fat? What if you were thin? What if you are black? What if you are green? Whatever color you want to be. In other words, it was for everyone. Anyone could cross the river, just like anyone can believe in Jesus Christ. But you have to believe it in the way you believe it. For them was actually walking across the river. For us, the way to receive salvation is to believe it. And that's how we have our so great salvation. Anyone could cross. Anyone can believe the gospel. There's a lot of parallels there. Now, in 4b, notice this. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Now, that's strange. Do you see that as somewhat strange? Why would he say that That you may know, and by the way, I want you to underline know. Know in here is, he uses this word a lot because God wanted to know things just like he wants us to know things. That you may know by which you shall go for you have not passed this way before. Now, what's confusing when I first read this, I thought, what do you mean that you'll know the way to go? How hard is it to know which way to go? The river is there. You're not going to get lost. I mean, if you go any other direction, you're not going to cross the river. There was only one direction to go, and that was to cross the river. So why do, <coughs> Excuse me. Why does He say, do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go. And then you have not passed this way before. What is He talking about? You understand what I'm saying? Most people will read that, and they're thinking about, Physical directions, you'll know the way to go. If you if you ask somebody directions, they say I'm I'm going to tell you the way to go, and you think of of directions. But this is not physical directions. This is telling them the manner that they are to go. They, they it's not talking about um, any physical direction whatsoever. It's talking about. The manner in which they are to go rather than the direction that they go. It's not a physical, in other words, how are you to go? It's not the way, the direction that they go or the way they walk. It's talking about something that is of a spiritual nature. The manner that they are to go is to keep their eyes on the ark. This is the way. The way is not a direction. The way to cross is make sure you keep your eyes on that ark as you're crossing. That's the manner. That's the way to cross. Keeping your eyes on the ark. What does that mean for us? Do we have issues? Do we have problems? Yeah. How are we... How are we to go? What is the way to go when you're facing a problem, especially if it's a big one like an impassable river? The way to go is not direction-wise. It's the manner-wise. And the way to cross, again, is what? Keeping your eyes on the ark. That's why there had to be a distance. It's, as long as you're keeping your eyes on the ark and you're not over here, Ooh, and you're looking at the water, you're going to be okay. So... Here's the, ins- the 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 bottom line the one who had to, they had to cross by faith not by making boats and rafts and things that they accomplish they had to cross by faith that was the manner that they had to go which was which was represented by the ark They had to depend upon God's grace. Have you had a problem lately? Where were your eyes? Were they on the problem? Or were they on the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, when you go to the Old Testament, it's all physical representation. And the ark representing Jesus Christ that was holding off the wrath, holding off the the adversity, holding off all all the bad things, Trusting the Lord is illustrated by them looking, keeping their eyes on the ark. And that's the way that they were to pass. And it says you haven't come this way, you haven't done this before. Look at the end of verse 4. For you have not passed this way before. Does it mean that they've never gone across that river? Or does it mean that they've never gone through rivers or crossed rivers? Sure, they crossed plenty of rivers when they were going up to... Do battle with King Sihon and Og. Remember that? There's rivers all in there and they would cross them. But he's saying, you never passed this way. What is he saying? This is going to take the extra measure of faith. You never crossed a river before and had to have this much faith because this is impossible to pass. So, what's he saying here? He's saying that You need to know the way by which you shall go, for you hadn't passed this way before. They've, and it's all Nothing in this is physical. It is all spiritual. They had never used that much faith to get through a problem before. Then verse 5, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. What in the world is he talking about there? The word consecrate is consecrate. Kadash, K-A-D-A-S-H. It's the hippiel, middle imperative. It means to consecrate, sanctify, prepare, or dedicate, to treat or regard as sacred. They're about to cross the river. It is getting close. They're going to cross the the next morning. And he says, consecrate yourselves. Now, if I told you you need to consecrate yourselves... Because God is going to do something great tomorrow, what would you do? Consecrate. You needed a kadash. Well, we can get some information. Let me give you, I'll just give you a hint right now. It means uh, to consecrate means to concentrate or focus on something. Consecrate, Concentrate. That's what it means. In other words, you're not going to go around doing your normal routine. Daily business is not going to be the order of the day. This is a very special time that you need to focus. You certainly need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you need to get your mind right because God is going to do a mighty work in your life, and you need to get ready for it. You need to be ready to concentrate on what God is going to do. That's what consecrate means. In Exodus chapter 18, verse 10 through 13, we have a similar situation. The people there had to do three things. Moses says, Consecrate yourselves. The situation was that God was about to give them the law. And he told them, Get ready for it. This is going to be a very special event. And Moses says, Consecrate your word yourself. Kadash, the same word that he uses here. These are the three things that they had to do. First of all, they had to wash their clothes. They had to be physically clean. For us, what would that mean? We need to be spiritually clean. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit by confession of sin. The second thing they had to do was be confined to a certain area. He said, for sure, do not let the people come past these boundaries up towards the mountain, or they will surely die. So they weren't to go on a trip. They weren't to go anywhere. Normal activities that they would do, they had to stay put. And the third thing they had to do was refrain from any sexual activity, which was perfectly normal and right, no problem with it, but it would be wrong on this particular time because it was a day of consecration, a day that you are to concentrate and meditate and be ready for something that God is going to do. Those are the three things that they did. So with the people that were going to cross the river the next day, God was going to do something phenomenal, and they need to be ready, having their minds right. You know what I thought about when I thought about this consecration? I can remember, I don't know how many football games that I uh, that I played in, but <coughs> I, I, my mind goes back to when I was in Waltrip High School. And we would play nearly, probably 95% of our, our games at a place called Del Mar Stadium, which is still there today. Uh, you can go by there and Del Mar Stadium is right there. And so we would get... Uh, Get there probably two hours early before the game started, and we'd have our duffel bag or our sack that we'd have our gear in, and we would—you'd have to walk down into uh, down a ramp to get into where the dressing room was, and we would get in there and we would get taped up. Uh, you know, you get your ankles taped and uh, get get out, everything ready to go, and then you went in there and you just sat. Everything was ready. You're, you, you get in your uniform, you're suited out, you're ready to go, but it might be 45 minutes, maybe an hour, before you actually would exit and go out there and start warming up for the game. And it was during that time that I see it was a time of consecration. You had to get your mind right. And I think any good team consecrates themselves before the event. You're not in there. Uh, under your normal, you know, football players are always teasing one another, you know, there's a bunch of mouthing off all the time and everything. Nothing wrong with that. But at that time, it didn't take place. You could hear a pin drop. Except there was one guy, a good friend of mine, his name was Bobby Henderson. I saw him not too long ago. I think maybe one of these days he's going to come here, lives over on the coast. He said he's going to come to church sometime. Anyhow, do this one. And uh, you could hear him because he was... <laughs> <laughs> he was in the restroom and it's all the, the block walls. There's no acoustics at all. And we would just wait for it. We knew it was going to happen because you get butterflies. And he would get all nervous. And it affected him to where he went in there. And he was just throwing up whatever he had. And we were, we, this was the standard thing. We knew this was going to happen. But the the players went into a different mode. We were about to be tested. There were going to be thousands of people in the stands. And we had been trained. We had practiced. The event was about to take place. And we had to ready ourselves by being quite meditating and just thinking. And some of us were praying. That is consecration. That's what the people were to do. Now, why did God want them to do that? We serve a mighty God, and He wants us to know how mighty He is. He didn't want them to have any distractions of daily life, out washing and cooking and all the other things. No, He said, he said consecrate yourselves, get your mind right, think about God, anticipate the great phenomenal thing that He's going to do for you, and that's an awesome thing, and prepare yourself, and prepare yourself right mentally. And that's what they were doing. So when God does something, He wants all the people to see what He did and that there's no He wanted them to see it. You had to stay far enough from the ark that you could see that it wasn't any person doing it. It was God who was doing it. They had their mind right. And look at the details. We're going to get to the verses, not today, but (laughs) we're going to get to the verses where it says specifically when the... When the soul of the priest touched the water, they stand on the edge of the water. A mighty thing is going to happen, and what we're going to see is that the water, the Bible says, it was heaped up for about fifteen miles away. That's how they were going to walk. They were going to walk across on dry ground. Now that is a phenomenal miracle, and he wanted the people to recognize this isn't an accident. There wasn't a bunch of a beaver convention downstream, and it just so happened that they built the dam, and it just stopped at that point, and happened to happen. No, this is something that is supernatural. Only God can do this, and He wanted everyone to see it, appreciate it, and be so impacted by it that when they crossed the river, and all these pagans, all these people who were their enemies who would want to kill them and annihilate them and wipe them out, that they wouldn't be afraid because they knew if God was with them when they crossed that river, they had to trust Him, then they should surely trust God with these enemies. If God can can stop a raging river, then He can certainly take care of the enemies on the other side. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, isn't this a beautiful picture of what God was doing for them? It's a beautiful picture for us. I mean, this was an actual event that is recorded in history for us in the pages of the Bible. But what does that mean for us? I mean, we can look at this and say, oh, well, that's a wonderful thing. God's great. Yeah, but I've got my own thing. No, this is for our benefit also. Do you have a raging river? How wide is your river right now? Well, maybe it's not so wide and you think it's no big deal. But I can assure you, it will rage. It will get wider. It will get deeper. And you will not be able to cross it. And this is given for our admonition so that we can do what? Keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I can't see them. You can see the Word. You can hear the Word. And when you're learning the Word, you're keeping your eyes on the Lord. And it is to imprint on the neurons of your brain so that when you're out there and it's time to cross the river that you will trust Him and not do a meltdown. This is one way that we are not enslaved to our circumstances because our God is greater than any circumstances. Our God is greater than a raging river. Our God is greater than anything. And He wants us to know it. Trust Him. Trust Him. I wish I wasn't out of time. I love to talk about how great our God is and how powerful He is and how He's on our side. And the Lord Jesus Christ... Another thing that we're going to see that the ark went out before the people and we're going to see another thing next Sunday is how he, the people will... One of the verses says God is saying to, him, to, to Joshua... This day I am going to exalt you among the people. You know why that was important? Remember when the people said, We will follow you, Joshua, but we need to know that the Lord is with you. Remember that verse? When they crossed the river, there is no doubt in their mind that the Lord was with Joshua. What did He tell Joshua? Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And He tells us the same thing. Let's bow our heads. There may be someone here that has never really trusted the Lord. Maybe they've heard about the Lord. Maybe they can quote Bible verses. Maybe they can talk about the Lord, but they've never really trusted the Lord for eternal salvation. They may have gone in that direction. They may be doing a few other things that uh, are just uh, a guarantee, extra guarantee for them as far as works is concerned. And they don't realize that just as God did everything to get the people across the river, He does everything for us at salvation. All we have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means just like the people had to start walking because they trusted that this was God, that, this, that He was withholding the waters and would do till they were safe. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He went to the cross and paid for your sins and my sins. He died, was buried, and was resurrected, which is proof that He was the Son of God and His mission was accomplished. Now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. What a shame it would be to stay on the wrong side of the river And never get across, never believe, never take those steps. Now you can do it today just simply by acknowledging that Jesus Christ took care of the earth sin problem on the cross and not by your own works. In that moment you're born again. You have eternal life. And you become a royal family member of God. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. Don't delay. Don't put it off if you haven't done that. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word that is so, well, it's, it's, it's alive and powerful. It reaches in and it impacts us in a way that nothing else can. We need to stop being crybabies and grumbling and griping and start trusting. We can benefit from what You've given us in this account of the Israelites and how they needed to trust You. So we pray that You will help us to trust You all the more so that You will get more glory and we will receive more blessings. And we pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.